you're listening to Rough Thoughts, a podcast devoted to the Jesus of the Scriptures and to rediscovering Him and His good news of the kingdom. You will hear testimonies, stories of the God of the heavens and the earth at work in ordinary lives. You will be presented with the grace and truth in Jesus. Get ready for the adventure. This is John from Ruck Thoughts. I have my good friend Justin Fowler here, hailing from Seattle. Yeah. Hey. Hey, everyone. Nice to be here on the podcast. All right. Buddy. Cool. Yeah. So, go ahead. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, Actually, you know what? Before we even start, let's pray. This yeah. is wow. <laughs> let's get let's 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 get before the Lord, man. Let's 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 let's, let's just Absolutely. amen. So. Want to open us up in a word of prayer? Oh, buddy? sure. Uh, Father, Father, thank you for the um, gift of life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, your Holy Spirit, you're able to uh, give back to you the love that you've given us. And we give this podcast to you this time together. And pray that uh, your Spirit will be all through it. And people would learn more about you what you've given to us and um, enabled us to give to you in love in your name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm, I felt good. <laughs> All right, bro. So why don't you go ahead and just share, share what um, you're talking man. So, uh, All right. So like uh, our friend Doug, who was on the podcast before, um, I just tell you, I have an amazing testimony as well, because uh, I was raised in the faith by, you know, both sides of my family have a legacy of uh, preachers going back um, on my dad's side and my mom's side. And uh, and so I was raised in a very, very much a Christian environment, encouraging um love and the virtues um it was it was flawed but it it had um there's a lot to be said for the moving the holy spirit and my development and faith even at a very early age so by the time i think it might have been around six where i was kind of led in the quote-unquote salvation prayer um in a sense you know i was asking jesus in my heart but he was already in some sense, he was already there because he I've received his love in this kind of, you know, even just subconsciously, you know, been drinking it in. But but I did formally receive him. And um, so I was raised um, in a Pentecostal tradition, Assemblies of God, um, like like Doug was, but it was Trinitarian. Um, <clears throat> and so I learned to. Uh, really engage uh, spiritually and um, receive God's love and and pray in the spirit and all that. And it was very, very good for me to um, engage that way because, I, you know, I, I, don't, I have no idea what might have happened if um, I didn't have that kind of dynamic relationship because, um, you know, the world can have its tug on you and, and get, you know, feel thrilling or exciting, but 
to me, God was way more exciting than than the world was. So um, it kept me in the, on that path. And so I actually kind of grew away from the Pentecostal tradition um, in my late teens, early adult years, because um, it just it would dry up sometimes. And it felt like this, the Holy Spirit wasn't being respected and allowed to have his way in service and all that. And so, um, you know, worship would just be cut short and it would just be like, okay, time for announcements. And I'm just like, what is this? I, I just, I need to have my own time with God. And so I kind of pull away and uh, have private time with God. And, and just, I kept that fire going. And um, I just have that at, at home even. I'd just be reading the Bible and suddenly I feel God's presence and and I'd be like, God, I'm trying to read the Bible here. And just no, 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 just spend some time with me. You know, that that's the important thing. And so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I uh, started kind of down a mystical path. And all that mystical means or mysticism means is that you're engaging God directly. And you're, you have a oneness with God in your spirit, which is the heritage of everyone who is a child of God. You know, we're by adoption in <clears throat> the Holy Spirit and redemption. Um, we're made one with, with him and his body. And so we all have a oneness with God. And it's just a matter of kind of diving into that, that experience of that. And so I really focused on that for a long time. And, um, and eventually um, I started to drift and didn't, I mean, in terms of like not no not really having a particular home in Christianity, and I just felt like I was sort of a mere Christian or not a nominational. I kind of flirted with reformed um, culture, um, reformed Christianity. I didn't I didn't fully agree with it, but um, I did appreciate the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and. How and in grace, and that we can't do anything apart from his grace, um, and that we're kind of subject to that, and that that relieved me a lot of the tension of constantly feeling like I have to earn something or make sure I'm right with God or something like that. That that's just not possible. Mm -hmm. God God is the one who's yep. made that. God has made us right, and so. That's right. Um, it really a lot of stress for me. Yeah, yeah. Even before, but even before I entered that context, I started to realize that, and that became sort of a natural home for me for a while. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a lot of uh, kind of church drama, and I was actually part of the, the Mars Hill congregations. Oh wow! Yeah, um, when that was a thing, and uh, yeah, yeah. So that there was a bit that big um, stir up there, and then the, it dissolved. And I, I still kind of went to um, one of the churches. So what what they did was when it was dissolved, a lot of the churches just became their own campus, their own church. Um, so I was a part of one of those for for a while, um, and then I just um, through various reasons I ended up. Uh, um, drifting out of a church attendance for a while. Um, but I, I, I never stopped praying and seeking God and, and spending time with God. Um, but 
recently within the past year, um, this has been a long, long-term thing. Um, in fact, I could trace back to in 2007, I, I was walking to the library and um, I saw Pope Benedict's book on Jesus of Nazareth. It was the second, second volume and it piqued my curiosity. And I w I've been raised kind of anti-Catholic and I was like, well, uh, at this point I was, I, I kind of picked up a book on the Christian mystics because again, I followed that path. And so I was kind of open to this. And so I, I, I picked up the book, I, I checked it out for a little bit and I never, I didn't finish it, but what I read of it was just kind of breathtaking. It was, it was back to, it's sort of back to basics, but with life breathing in it and light coming through it. And I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. It was both scholarly and devotional and spoke to my soul. And, and so it kind of laid the groundwork for me being more sympathetic to Catholicism and uh, eventually, you know, um, I had a lot of Catholic friends and I ended up joining the, the church this year. Um, I started attending last year. Um, it's, but it's a Byzantine rite. So not a lot of people know about this, but the, the Catholic church has different rites and it, and mm -hmm. not all of them are Roman. Uh, there's one, one of the rites is Roman, but the other ones, uh, I think at least most of the other ones are Eastern rites. So it's kind of like Eastern Orthodoxy, except, um, it's just part of the Catholic church. <laughs> So right. through that, um, I, uh, I have, uh, so I have a squirrel. actually encountered a lot of that same spiritual energy. Go ahead. Yeah. So the Byzantine, right. Um, so you said that's Eastern Orthodox. Essentially, essentially, well, um, I would say it's actually Eastern Orthodox, but it's very much like, gotcha. it, it has very much the same liturgy. Roger. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. So, so if you go to Eastern Orthodox Church, it's almost the same thing. Nice. So, yeah, they carry. I mean, and by the way, um, these the liturgy is it goes way back. I mean, they use liturgy from like Saint John Chrysostom, Saint Basil, right? Early, early church fathers. Mm -hmm. um, they, they take them straight from them. And so, um, anyway, um, so yeah, a lot of that same spiritual energy and vitality came through experiences I was having there and it just has spoken to me very powerfully this time in my life. And I knew I needed more direction and all that. So I just, I wanted to let everybody know where I'm coming from, but I will say that a lot of what I'm going to say today isn't, um, something you have to be a Catholic to hold to. Right. Um, it's it's very much um, incongruent with it, um, no, but nothing I'm going to say is is anything you have to, you know, be specifically Catholic to believe or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> I was I was thinking about this stuff. I've been thinking about this stuff for years, off and on, and uh, talking with friends about it. What I what I have to say is very congruent with Catholic theology. Um, but any tradition, any Christian tradition you're part of, since this goes to the fundamental root of what the gospel is, it can be congruent with your theology as well. Um, now, there mm -hmm. may be some areas where you might be challenged mm -hmm. by it, but um, but it very much goes to the heart of what Christianity is. So, um, 
so yeah, I guess I'll just go ahead and start getting into it. Um, <clears throat> so what I have to bring today is basically what's called gift theology. And it's a theology which is oriented around the concept of a gift, um, what a gift is. And I, I'm going to be exploring what that means, even just logically. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to let people know that it's kind of experimental thought process. It's not, um, I haven't done a lot of research into the history of gift theology. I, I've done some looking into, um, on a surface level so far of what, uh, what actual like the theologians and scholars have had to say about it. But, um, but given the fact that we all kind of have, you know, experience with gift, um, we can kind of get something out of it, even without um, a deep research or, or scholarly study into it. You know, at least something that could be informative for how to think about God and our relationship to God. Um, and so, um, I didn't really think through, let's see. Also, what I have to say is that... Um, from what I understand, I'm not a historian, but um, that what we think of as a gift in the full-fledged meaning of that um, didn't have the life that it does in our culture now um, before Christianity. This is my understanding. I don't don't quote me on that, but um, I do believe that there's something to that because there's that verse that says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the hope that you have, right? And what that's actually referring to is the fact that in the, the culture of the day, when Christianity first started in the Roman Empire and all that, um, there, there was basically a system of obligations. You had patrons and clients and all that, and patrons would provide. So the patrons would be the the wealthy people who'd be able to um, provide for the clients who were those who would work for them. Um, and uh, and it's a, sort of a reciprocal relationship. So there were expectations and obligations involved in that. So that it was kind of open-ended. So it wasn't like a con like a finely tuned contract where I'm going to give you such and such amount. But it was just there was an expectation that the needs would be met, and and so um, oftentimes what would be th thought of as a gift would be something within that system of obligations. But in Christianity, um, because the gospel is the message of God unconditionally giving Himself to us, with no strings attached, um, there's this new concept of a gift that just. You know, you, you just give something without an expectation of anything in return. And so these Christians, when they would do something like that, people would would think, well, they would, they would, sometimes people would take issue with it because like, I, I don't, I can't give you anything back. Like I, I can't return anything. I don't have anything to give you or something like that. But Jesus told, told his followers to give to those who can't give back. Right. So that's what they would do. And, and so they were imitating Jesus. And so when people, when this would raise a lot of questions, people would be like, well, why are you doing this? Like what, <laughs> like, that's not how this works. 
then they would have the answer for that, which would be because Christ did it. And, and you know, this is the hope that we have. The, you know, we have that deposit of eternal life. And then one day we're going to be glorified with him in heaven. He just gave it to us. Like there's no expectation or obligation. Um, but um, as I'll get into with this, that very um, overflowing gratuity, you know, gratuity just means um, it's sort of a um, not needed or obliged, just, just overflowing out of your heart. You know, um, that, that nature of that, actually inspires the person who's who's given it to give back right so um so there is sort of an expectation in a sense um the reciprocity involved in pure giving this i'm I'm quoting um this article you might you might put this in the description maybe absolutely Uh, it's from the imaginative conservative and it's about about gift theology okay so it says the reciprocity involved in pure giving, however, is of a different kind from that in purchasing or bartering, where we simply exchange things that are perceived as being of roughly equal value or desirability. In a pure gift, we feel an obligation, and yet it's paradoxically an obligation that does not oblige in the strict sense, because if it did, we would no longer be free. Many so-called gifts, it has to be said, are not pure gifts in this sense, but attempts to place another in one's debt and thus bring about the behavior desired by the giver. No doubt we can think of examples of this in our lives, of you know, people who do that. Um, in a pure gift, as I mentioned, there is first an obligation to return things, not a payment for the gift, but its completion. Um, so like not like not, not something material necessarily, but it's there's a completion of the gift that you you, you say thank you. You, you, know, you receive it as a gift. A gift is not fully given until it is accepted, and it cannot be accepted without the act of thinking, which in a sense makes room for the gift. There is also an obligation to give something more than thanks in return, and this fact merits some close attention. So it goes into that. So that's kind of to kind of give the gospel angle on this. Um, there's that whole um, issue of faith versus works, and um, you know an expectation of there being a response to grace that we live as if we've actually been given salvation rather than just um, acting as we did before. Because if you truly receive unconditional love, then it will change you. It will change how you act. So there's that impact of the gift itself that um, it's, it's very interesting how, how this all works together. And I'm going to go into this, um, but let me, let me cover some of sort of the logical dimensions of what determines whether something is a gift or not, because sometimes these things get, um, the boundaries get blurry a little bit with that. Um, so first of all, um, a gift has to first be possessed by the giver, right? I mean, you can't give something that's not yours, that's someone else's, or that you stole. I mean, that's not a legitimate gift. <laughs> and and it's not something that, like, the person you're giving to you already has. It's not like, you know, like, sometimes a little kid might, might, might uh, you know, say, like, uh, 
um, you like that candy that like you say you already have a candy in your hand and you're like, you like that candy? And it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, well, that's my gift to you. And it's like, (laughs) (laughs) no, that, that, you know, that, that was something the person already had. It's like, you know, it's just silly, (laughs) but we know that like, you know, if you're going to give something, this has to be something that you're able to transfer from yourself to the person you're giving to, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, of course, it has to be something. Yeah, it has to be something that can actually be transferred or or given. Um, I kind of wrote down that it's not like you can give your ear to someone because this is yours. This is your ear to use. If you were to like cut off part of your ear or cut, you know, like the the whole legend of Vincent Van Gogh. Um, giving his ear to his girlfriend. I think he just gave it to a maid or something like that, but um, it's not like she could use the ear. You know, it's, it's not something that could really be transferred and be a meaningful gift. You also can't give someone like your mind because it's not like they can control your mind and they can actually receive it and own it, you know? So it has to be something that can be transferred to, to someone else. Um, even like land can can be transferred to someone else, even though it's stationary, you know, it doesn't have to move from one point to another, but it has to be able to be granted. Um, another thing is it has to be determined by the giver, like in order for it to meaningly, meaningfully be something that is being given by the person, they, you know, whether... Um, it may be that like they noticed that someone wants something that it's on their wish list, like on Amazon or something, but still they determine that's what I'm going to get. Right. That's, um, you know, I, I decide, no, I'm going to give this thing and not another thing. Cause it, it could have been something totally different. Even if it's even, even despite the fact that that person said, Oh, I want this or it's on their wish list or something. I, the, I'm the one who made that decision. And so, because of that, um, it, that's why gifts naturally have an element of surprise. Because um, since the person, the recipient's not determining what the gift is, um, there's this element of surprise where it's like, oh wow, you know, that's so, that's so cool. Like that you gave that to me. Like that was very in in and the best kinds of gifts are the thoughtful ones, right? There's a lot of thought that was put into this. So even if you're uh, looking at the, at someone's wish list or something someone said, you're deciding that that gift is what you, you you decided to give and not something else. So, so it has a nature of supply because because um, it, it's determined by the giver, and so you can't read the person's mind, right? So. So uh, that's their determination. And so when they introduce the gift to you, then it can have this nature of surprise, like, oh, I had no idea. Or you might be able to sort of guess uh, what they might um, be deciding to give, but ultimately you don't know for sure until they give it, right? So there's something that, there's that interesting element of surprise that comes out of this fact that it's determined by the giver. Okay. And then we have um, the fact that the gift is freely offered by the giver, no obligations or demands. So if there's some kind of demand on the person to give it, 
it it really isn't like what a gift is. It's it then it becomes sort of um, either an obligation or um, just a sort of a demand for something. Um, it's not really what we call a gift. It's 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 nature changes, and so it's a completely different dynamic. So it has to be something that the the person wants to give. Like this is, they're deciding. Like I'm freely doing this. I I don't feel any obligations or demands. I just want to give this to this person. I, this is my love for this person that that drives me to do this, right? And also, like you know, the, there's this whole thing about like um, when. There's this whole thing about suggested donations for, for something and where, where the donation is actually sort of obligatory. Like, well, you're, you, you're supposed to give this, like, you can't just take that. Like you're supposed to give this thing in order to get the, and it's like, that's where the lines get blurry. Sometimes it's like, and I know people have made comment on this before. It's just like, well, why don't you just say that's the price for it? You know, <laughs> it's not just a suggested donation. Now, sometimes it really is. I mean, they'll let you take it regardless. Um, but, but that's where the lines can get blurry sometimes, but it absolutely has to be that the gift is just a gift. Like you didn't have to do it. Like, Oh, you didn't have to, like, really, you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to give that, but that was your freedom. That was your, you know, you did it out of love or you did it out of admiration for the person or something like that. Okay, and then there's um, the fact that there's no strings attached from the other side. Um, so not only is the giver not obliged, but they're also not obliged to the other person. Um, it, because if if they were obliging them, they, you know, by saying like, well, I expect something in return, whether, you know, they're subtly suggesting that or or saying it outright. If they're doing that, then that's just more of an exchange. Again, it's the, the same kind of sort of thing as a, like the suggested donation, wink, wink kind of thing. It's more of an exchange. It's not a gift. You know, they're, they're giving something in order to get something. And so a true gift is you're just letting it go and you're saying this is yours. Um. But I, I will say that there is a possibility of like giving something to share with the person. I mean, that that's also um, something that can happen, you know, um, like I'm give, like, say one spouse gives to another a pull because that person really, their spouse really wanted to pull in the backyard, but they're both going to use it, you know? So this is, and they'll have, you know, a lot of nice times in the jacuzzi or something like that. You know, this is something we're sharing, but it's still a gift. So um, that kind of nuances the whole thing about the transferal aspect of it. But at the same time, you are saying this is freely yours. You can do whatever you want with it, right? So also, um, it's not now one you could say it's a gift before the person receives it, but really in order to really have be a gift, it has to have been received, right? In order for that full orbed aspect of the givingness, like it, it wasn't given until it's been received. Until then, it's just an offer. It's like, I'm offering you this. Until it's received, it's like, well, 
it wasn't really given. So it's how can you say it's a fully say it's a gift, right? So that's important too. That becomes important theologically, right? So all this is going to have an impact on our theology that we get into. Um, and then also there are some other considerations that um, it really in this in this receiving. Um, if you're truly receiving it as a gift, then you know all the, all that we said up to this point that it was first possessed by the giver, it was actually transferred, it's freely determined by them, freely offered, and all that. That that's part of it, and that helps you to understand that you know what it means for them to give that to you. What what that actually means, and the maybe the sacrifice involved in it, or the thought that went behind you know came behind it and so um so yeah that receiving is actually an important part of the gift giving process and in a sense um the receiver receives the giver and the gift like their their heart and their thought in it and um that thankfulness like i was reading earlier that thankfulness that they the receiver gives is also sort of a gift to the giver because that was the whole purpose, right? They wanted to know that this would be um, a blessing to the person, that this would be something that would be received well because they, you know, that's the whole reason by forgiving is that you want them to receive it. You, you want to know that that um, was received well. Right, that was your whole purpose in giving it. So now we kind of covered um, the scope of what it means for something to be a gift. Now um, we can kind of talk about where does gift giving come from? Where's this nature of gift giving come from? And um, I think it really actually helps us to clarify and understand what the Trinity is. So I I think I might take a break here um, to talk to, um, sorry, I might um, go into reading a little bit of something I put together. This is actually a few years ago. I was trying to start working on a book and um it, it, I just had a lot of personal life stuff, so I haven't really gotten to um, fully writing this book, but I kind of wrote an introduction for it. And so um, I think uh, this kind of crystallized my thoughts a bit on this. So I'll just go ahead and read this. <clears throat> I titled this part, The Original Devotion. As you read this book, you may be sitting on a couch or recliner or in a subway seat or you may be lying in bed or on the beach or walking on a treadmill at the gym. Perhaps the warm sunlight is beaming down on your face, or perhaps you are ensconced in the darkness of night. But wherever you are, in whatever posture, you exist in a body composed of cells resting in a sea of microscopic particles. You are part of a cosmic order that has existed far before you were born and will go on existing for a long time. That is far bigger than your comprehension and far more interesting and complex than could ever be searched out. Yet at root, this world we all live in is not simply composed of microscopic particles moving through time, 
but as scripture reveals, is part of a fundamental exchange of glory between the persons of the Trinity. In short, the world is composed of love, such love that the ultimate persons from whom reality flows are totally sold out in love to each other. This mystery revealed by the gospel of love explains all the enigmas of life, history, psychology, spirituality, and the natural order itself. In short, this divine love is a secret to life, being its very source. And as such, partaking of it is the only way to become truly satisfied in every way, spiritually, mentally, morally, socially, and even bodily. The purpose of my writing this book is that so, so that you, the reader, may thus come to know what the essential meaning of your own existence is, and take the straightest path toward the very heart of this love so that you, too, may live in total satisfaction in it for the rest of your existence. What is love? But you may ask, what is this love and what does it mean? We talk about love all the time in love songs. We talk about loving icons and heroes, loving our neighbor, loving food, loving God. But what does love actually mean? What surfaces up in the phenomenal relation, or phenomenal revelation of Christianity is the idea that the heart of love involves three, three relationships, giver, receiver, and gift. To put it most simply, love is a gift, and a gift implies both a giver and a receiver. So if reality is fundamentally characterized by love, there must be a giver, a receiver, and the gift itself. And since this reality is fully love, then everything must be given and nothing held back. Thus, the giver gives all of himself, the receiver receives all of the giver, and the gift, being able to be transmuted from one to the other, is yet a third thing manifesting as the gift itself. This formulation has traditionally been given the metaphor of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the giver, the Son is the receiver, and the Holy Spirit is the gift. But we need not, we need not accrue human attributes in order to understand this three-part relationship, especially since this divine reality is essentially beyond human. God is spirit and the very essence of gift itself, wherever a gift may be found. To the degree that we receive without demand or expectations or give freely and without conditions, therefore we experience God as present. God is always present because God always gives of himself fully in order for us to even exist. But without reciprocating this, his gift, we cannot be blessed by it or knowingly experience his presence. Just as the Son gives all that he, all that he is, all that, all that which was originally given to him by the Father, back to the Father, all over again. So are we meant to as well. We were created in the image of the Son to first receive all the love that the Father has to give to us according to the capacity we've been given, and then to give it all back unto Him again. It's much like the process of breathing air in and out. We are given love, which is colored by the unique identity we're created to have, only to give this transformed love back outward toward God again. And that's the extent to which I've written, but that gives you a, kind of a taste of where I'm going with this, right? <clears throat> so, I'll rehearse some of what I said there in that. Um, <clears throat> the Trinity, a lot of people, you know, they're like, what is, what is with the Trinity? Because it's kind of weird, right? Like, you have three persons and one Godhead. And it's like, why three? Why are there three persons? Um, and how are they one, one being, and yet there are three, like, one, 
it's like and the people get confused like um i like to put it this way it's one being three persons and um and don't get that confused where you're saying one being three beings or one person yet three persons or like <laughs> one person and three beings or something weird like that like no one being and three persons and that that at least can get you at a starting point where you are starting to make sense of what this means, right? Three persons sharing one being. Um, now it goes beyond our comprehension because it's, it's um, we, we kind of think of it in human terms in a sense, because, um, you know, we're one humanity. But like C.S. Lewis said, if you look at humanity stretched out over time, you, know, you see people coming from the wombs of their mothers. And it's more like a tree. Like you, you see the family trees, you know, the, the branches going out. Um, we're kind of almost like one total unity of, of, of persons. And this is even more true with the body of Christ, where we're actually made one in harmony, not just um, substance, but there's a total harmony that goes on. There's not that conflict, um, at least through, through the redemption. I mean, I know we have conflict here on earth, but that's sort of a superficial um, thing that we're going through right now. And in the way that Christ has redeemed us, we actually have this fundamental harmony that, that cannot be disturbed. Um, but the Trinity is is a essence shared by three persons that is so tightly knit and so one that it goes beyond our comprehension. So like I was talking about how, um, well, let me just, let me just start from the, the basics. You have the father. So he's um, called the father because he begets the son, right? The son comes from him and um, he's the father sharing his divine essence, all that he is, which is love. Um, and so <clears throat> in human relationships between father and son, you can think of any number of attributes that are different between the fathers and the son. They're not like clones of each other, but when we're thinking about, um, the Father and Son and the Godhead. You know, of course, these are metaphors, right? Um, because they're not, strictly speaking, human. Now, the Son took on human nature, but in essence, they're not human. Um, it's not like there are these numbers of attributes of difference between them. It's, and it's not like one preceded the other chronologically, like the Father came, and then he beget the Son, or something like that. We have to remember that... This is a different kind of relationship. Um, the metaphor is used to convey the fact that the father is giving his his very own essence to the son. And that's why the son exists. He exists in this state of, uh, or in this relationship, a dependence upon the father. And, in fact, that dependence, um, that divine dependence upon the father enables there for there to be any kind of creaturely dependence upon God as well. 
because he does it perfectly, right? You know, we talk a lot about how, uh, in, you know, in Christianity, we talk a lot about how um, the son perfectly models uh, what it is to be the perfect human, right? Um, so that enables us, it gives us a, a, a capacity, um, the potentiality for us to um, fulfill that, to, to have such virtue and, and excellence in our relationship with the Father that we're able to expand into that that relationship of sonship. And there's no limitations that, you know, there's not like there's a ceiling above which we, we, can't, we can't go. It's not to say that we're, we're going to be perfect in this life, right? That's not the point. But the point is that there's no ceiling. There's no actual limitation in that. And so the same thing in the eternal Godhead, there's that perfect modeling of receiving the gift of the Father and also um, giving back to him, which is what the Son does eternally, right? And so then what's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit, um, you know, there has to be this transference from the Father to the Son, right? It's the divine essence, but but what does it, you know, um, um, because because it's an, a perfect, complete essence, it's it's essence of the Father himself, then it it's what he's giving is his own person, right, to the, the Son. So the, the, the Holy Spirit can be seen as like the medium between the two, and it, he's the actual gift, that gift of the divine essence from the Father to the Son, and then back again. And so um, what's being given is no less than than the very divine essence itself. So we can think of uh, how we can give ourselves to each other. Um, this happens in the body of Christ, but it even happens in you know in natural terms. Um, of course, whole person has been given from the Father to the Son, and from the Son to the Father, in reciprocation. And so the fact that there's this whole personhood being given means that there must be a medium between the two. So that's why there's three. There's the giver, receiver, and the gift, which is also not just a something, but the divine essence itself is the personhood of God being granted. So that makes a right. I, I hope that makes sense to the audience. Like why there's, there has to be three. And, and then you can see why there doesn't need to be any more than that. Right. That's the perfect number. So, um, and we can see this in scripture, you know, uh, this was in the beginning was, uh, in the beginning there was God and, and, um, the word was with God and the word was God and all that. We, uh, and then we can also see where it says in like first Corinthians 15, where it says that, uh, the son will subject everything back to the father, you know? So the, God create and also in Colossians, um, Colossians one it says all things were created through the Son and exist by means of the Son, and so there's this, um, you know, like I was reading from the excerpt that I've written before, um, we sort of exist in in a sense in the crossfire of love of divine love, right? Because God creates the world through the Son, and in a sense He's giving it to the Son. And then the son gives it back to the father. Um, and that's just a part of that overall gift that they, they give to each other, the divine essence. 
right? It's just that that giving of creation between the between each other is made possible by the fact that they they share the divine essence between each other. So anyway, so the Trinity is the the first, the primary, some say primordial, use that word, um, gift, relationship of gift, and that's how. Um, really reality is characterized because because God creates the world out of his own own nature so everything holds together that way so ultimately in order for reality to be fulfilling for be meaningful uh, reaches full significance then there has to be that exchange of gift and and it and remember it's not a gift it's not an exchange of obligations it's not I have to do this. It's I get to do this. I love to do this. I, I want to do this. So, um, you know, and then we can look at the gospel. And th that's what's so startling and surprising about the gospel is because it lands in a world of obligation, demand, or imposition. You know, we're, we're trying to get our own way. We're, we're twisting each other's arms. Sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly. We're slapping each other across the face. We're wounding each other. And in the midst of all this, God just gives himself and says, okay, here's my beloved son. He said that at his baptism, here's my beloved son, right? And so then we were allowed to do what we will with him. It, it wasn't like he nailed himself up to the tree. We did that. Like that was our, in a sense, um, even though like um, it wasn't like, we did it in the nature, in the out of the motivation of giving to to the father. Like, here's your son. <laughs> like, we give you your son back. Like, in a way, um, because that's just fundamentally how things work. Um, God received that. He received the perfection of His Son on the cross, right? And that's how we're able to be redeemed. So. Um, it's not that because so, some people will will take the crucifixion, they'll, they'll take the, their theory of atonement and, and, and try to make it into the system of obligations and things like that. And God had to do this because he had to fulfill his own law. And, and, and there's some like wonky theology can come out of um, um, the mire of trying to mix things in with the way of the world and trying to make sense of it through the eyes of, of our own legal systems and things like that. And um, I don't think that's the real, the right way to look at it because we have to understand what a marvelous thing this is. Why would God do that at all? Like, even if, you know, in order to redeem us, he had to do this way. Why did he decide to redeem us? You know, because it goes back to the Trinity. If we're Trinitarian, then we can see why, you know, because, um, God exists in pure gratuity, pure freedom, pure, pure love. And he has no needs from us. He doesn't need us to do any such, any certain thing because God already exists in that pure perfection. Right. And so, um, there's a lot that comes out of this. There, there's a lot of dross that we can, um, uh, shave off of our theology if we just go back to the basics of what what even is God, what what is the Trinity, what does this all mean, right? And so a lot of times people will um, try to 
uh, criticize theology by, you know, saying, well, this isn't loving. And, that, and that's, yeah, that could be true enough. Or they'll say that just, that just bothers me or something. And they, they, they don't know exactly how or why it bothers them. Um, but when you go back to this fundamental nature of God, then you can begin to understand very specifically why some of these theologies don't work. Right. And, and, and we can get into that maybe later, but I just, this is just sort of like a, um, uh, you know, light of the touch paper on, on this whole conversation, right. That we can all have together. Um, and I also have noticed that like, in some respects, there are certain theological categories that, um, this gift theology makes sense of that can purify these categories where, you know, like some people will try to push back against the idea of divine sovereignty or nature revelation or authority or things like that. But really these are, these are integral concepts. We can't do without them, but we have to understand them. Right. Okay. So one of the things I will say is that, for instance, with divine sovereignty, that just comes from the fact that the Godhead, the, the Trinity, is the giver of existence. We didn't choose to exist. We didn't, you know, like, just like you didn't choose to be born or conceived. Um, you just came into this world and, well, here you are. Like, you, you didn't, you couldn't precede yourself. Like, it's not like, um, well, I mean, I... I I guess if you believe in the pre-existence of souls, maybe, but but you had some kind of origin point, right? <laughs> Even if you believe in that, you know, there wasn't like it wasn't like you existed before you existed to decide you would exist. If that makes sense, <laughs> like, you have an origin point. You're not the creator, is what I'm getting at, right? So God is God is the giver. God is the giver of life of, of existence, and and so because of that, it, he's he's sovereign. Right. So, um, and, and it also follows from the fact that what he gives is shared, right? Like I was, I was telling, uh, like I was noting before, a gift can be shared, like with the pool example, you, you share the pool with your spouse or the, the hot tub with your spouse. Um, but you're the one who gave it, right? And just like the father shares his, his life and his essence with the son, they share it, but father is the one who gave it, right? So, um, God gives us existence now god um can't give it in such a way where we can own our own existence like you know i, I can stuff myself out of existence or, or i mean what and and i'm not talking about suicide because suicide is just killing the body right but i'm talking about like actually making yourself not exist anymore uh not even as a soul you can't do that um you're not the lord of your own existence so no matter what there's that sharedness like not sharing existence with you. So that's divine sovereignty. You can't get away from that. That doesn't mean therefore that God is making you do what you're doing. And, and he's like, you know, pressing the weight of his hand and gets you like, you got to, you better do this or else because God is gift. Remember we, there's no strings attached. He's giving you, um, your existence without an expectation of, how you'll respond. Now, there's a certain way in which we could say there is an expectation, right? We covered this before where it said, 
you know, if you're truly receiving it, then you'll act like you've received it. If you truly received unconditional love, you'll be more loving. Um, we can go back to the parable that Jesus told about the unforgiving servant where, so for those of you who don't know, I mean, I'm sure everybody on this podcast has heard it, but I read it, but, um, basically it goes that the, uh, um, master had servants and there's one servant who racked up a ton of debt and it was like unpayable debt, like trillions of dollars or something. It was comical amount of money. And he brought the guy before him. The guy said, I can't pay it. There's just no way. And he said, okay, I'm just going to forgive it. I'm going to forgive you. That's it. And that was it. He was free to walk away. And that was, that was the end of it. <laughs> just crazy. This is in Jesus own parable. Like this is how we know this is, this is true. This is what Christianity is, right? Is that it's an unmerited, um, undeserved and, um, yeah, gift that, that no strings attached. It's like he was free to walk away. But the thing was, when he walked away, he found someone who owed him money and he demanded, he like basically choked the guy. He's like, you better give me that money or else. Well, the thing was, after that, the, the master threw him in jail. Why? Because he realized the guy, and this is the secret of this parable, he hadn't actually received the um, debt clearance. He hadn't realized what a gift that was and, and, and graciousness realized that this is how my master works on, on down the line. If he works that way, then I can't, I can't go against that and demand payments and, and demand my, the, debt, the debts or else um, he didn't really get it. So he hadn't really received it. And that's the real secret of that parable is like, Someone might say, well, that, that, he just, the master went against his word. He, he said he was going to just clear the debt and then he went against it. He, he threw him in jail anyway. Well, the thing was, the guy hadn't actually received the debt clearance. See? So that's why I said it's important that the receiver receive the gift in order for it to be called a gift, in order for it to be get, actually given. That's important part of theology. That's where that freedom comes in. We have the freedom to reject the gift the gift of, of the gospel, of grace. We have that freedom. And if we don't receive it, then God can't make us. You can't make, and I, I could could have included this too in the uh, logical conditions. You can't make the person receive the gift. Um, then it wouldn't be a gift. And so this is also a way of talking about this without, um, you know, sort of getting lost in these debates about free will. Because sometimes we can get lost in the philosophical debate about, well, you know, free will, do we actually have free will? <laughs> and it's like, well, I think we're losing the plot when we do that. Let's just focus on the fact it's a gift. And that will make sense of it. You see? So, divine sovereignty is one thing that, that comes out of this. Um, another is revelation. So, revelation, you know, you can't, when it comes to revelation, like something that's revealed that, that uh, you know, God's unconditional love and his grace. Um, we would have never just like found that on our own, you know, like um, it, that would only ever have been revealed. And even if someone had come to a point where um, they did discover it without having heard of Jesus's name, if that's even possible, <laughs> like uh, um, that's probably unheard of that anyone has ever done that, but let's say they did. Um, 
maybe we could say King David came close to that that idea. But even if they did, that would still be God's spirit breaking through into the person's heart to reveal it to it, right? You don't just like figure this out like this is a math equation or like you're creating some kind of story or something. This is given to you. This is just given, right? You you didn't come up with this yourself. So revelation comes out of this gift theology as well. Uh, divine unpredictability is another thing. Um, though that's not like a formal term, divine unpredictability, but um, but just the fact that like you know we talk about how well you never know what God's going to do. Um, God works in mysterious ways, and the moment you think you know. Uh, the moment you observe that God works in this way and you think he's always going to work this way, he, he changes it up. We see this all throughout scripture. We, you know, he does things a certain way and then he, he changes it up and, and uh, works a different way. Um, they thought uh, because God led Israel in um, a status as a nation, um, protected its people, led its military and all that, that the Messiah would just come that way. He would come as a military per leader and and lead them into victory. But he changed it up. He he did something completely different that they didn't expect. He laid on his life for them and for the world. And that, that gift, that was a total surprise. Nobody was expecting it, not in that way. Um, there were elements of it, you know, that that, uh, um, that had been dropped in, like, um, that preceded it. Um, I think, you know, you probably have heard, um, I don't know if the whole audience has heard, but there was a different um, uh, Messiah legacy, like Messiah ben David, and there was Messiah ben, uh, I believe it was Joseph, if I recall. Um, but they prefigured a suffering Messiah, but they still didn't think of, you know, God taking on human flesh and then suffering, dying, and then rising again so that we could all have life. That That was never on the table right that whole story that was a surprise so um and then oh i kind of talked about this with divine sovereignty with authority divine authority um was given is also shared um from god god oh let me break in here actually for a moment um and talk about sixpence none the richer you know i know people a lot of people well maybe not everybody but this is a uh, a 90s kind of alternative band and they based it off their name off of uh yeah uh kiss me da, 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 da. Uh, <laughs> um they based that their name off of a story by C.S. Lewis who talked about how um <laughs> this is almost like my candy example but not not quite but um how a kid asked his dad for, I think it was his dad, uh, for sixpence. So you go get a gift. Uh, well, he didn't say he was getting a gift, but he just asked for sixpence. And then he went off and, and got a gift for his dad and then gave it to him. And well, <laughs> C.S. Lewis says, you know, you the dad was sixpence, none the richer. That's where the name comes from. Um, because it was, you know, it was... An, an exchange of sixpence for the, the thing and the thing the dad could have bought it himself. It's not like he got something materially more than he 
had before. But he did get the the kid's love, you know, his thought, his kid's thoughtfulness and his love through that. But materially, he didn't get anything more. It's the same thing. We're we're borrowing what God gives us in order to give back to Him. So, really, everything that we have is shared by, is shared or borrowed from God in a sense where it's stewarded or, or whatever word you want to use. And so, because God still owns everything in a sense, and fundamentally, He's He's granted things uh, freely. So he doesn't go back on that. The gifts of there's that verse that says the gifts of God are without repentance, and that's important for our definition, right? Because um, I talked about how a gift is given freely; uh, it's not revoked. It's it's just like let go of it. This is yours now, no matter what you want to do with it. Um, and so the gifts of God are given without repentance. But so he doesn't go back on that. But at the same time. Um, there's a, sen- a certain sense of authority in that, in a, in a fundamental sense, it's still God's. So God has to still administer justice and 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 love and and take care of His creatures and and those who call out for Him. Um, so there is a sense of authority in that as well. Um, free will, you know, I talked I talked about this a moment ago, but um, we must be free to give back. You know, God's given to us. He's given to existence. He's given grace, salvific grace. So we have to be free to give back. We have to be able to be givers ourselves and free to receive it as well. And then um, salvific grace. So there's this whole debate going on between like David Bentley Hart and uh, Edward Fazer and, and others about whether nature itself is, is grace. Um, I, I believe it is because this is basically all I'm saying is underlining that fact, you know, the, that existence is a gift and, um, and nature is a grace that is intended to, um, propel us towards receiving all that God has for us, which it, which would be God ensures that we have free will because we're made in the image of God, which means that we're, um, givers and receivers. And both giving and receiving must be free. And so, um, yeah, there's the possibility that we won't, which, you know, we've seen that the fall of man uh, means that we haven't um, reciprocated like we ought, ought to have. So there's that possibility that we might not do it. There's a freedom there. And so, um, yeah, so gift is free and receiving is free. And so... It, like I said before, I think that puts that frames it in a way that's more coherent and specific, and that centers it in, in, in something that's core to even what the Trinity is itself and the nature of reality. And then um, salvific grace. Um, now, I could I, at first I just wrote down grace, but then I realized I need to specify that because there's this whole debate going on between like David Bentley Hart and Edward Fazer about. Um, uh, whether nature itself is a grace and there's this whole dialogue about whether, you know, we're um, set up from the beginning to receive the whole very being of God. And I, I believe we are. I mean, this go, that goes a lot right along with what I'm saying. 
um, in all of this, you know, the gift and all that. It's it's, it's more so, simple and coherent, I think. But but we can hone in specifically on salvific grace, and that um, you know that's the heart of the gospel, right? It's not merited. There's no strings attached. Just the gift. It, God gives freely. Because look, there's no way. There's no way. Like with the parable of the man indebted to his master. There's no way we could pay it. So we know. We know that it has to be a gift. Um, and um, but it was all. It always was a gift. Our existence was a gift, right? And that's the way it was always supposed to be. But um, I think what happened with humans is that we kind of got screwed up about that, and we started thinking maybe God's not totally for us. Maybe He's underhanded or not totally giving everything that um, um, He could give to us, and that He's holding something back or, or something like that. And that's where humans really got screwed up. But now in this gift of redemption, we know that it's just a pure and merited gift. God just loves us that much. He'll even reach down to the deepest abyss, right? And and I also, I thought of this before um, we started this as well, in that um, this is also kind of why it's hard sometimes for people to receive it, because this loops back into divine sovereignty again, right? Right? That we have to, we end up having to acknowledge that God is King, that God is the one from whom we must draw our strength, and that's kind of hard. I mean, um, that's um, that makes it difficult for people a lot of times. That they have to be subject to the giver. But if the thing is, there's just no getting around it. It's not that God's like asserting Himself in some sense, like like often human rulers right. do, like I'm going to rule this people like you better do what I say and they have to assert their authority. God doesn't have to do that. Right. It's just the nature of how things are because God is the giver. Um, then there's no way to get around that. Like it's, it's not like someone else can stand in, in that role, you know, uh, that's just how things are. And, and especially when we see the nature of the Trinity itself, you know, there's that whole Trinitarian core to everything. And that just can't be subverted. So there's a natural authority that uh, exists there. But it can purify our notion of authority so that we understand it's out of love. It's out of love that he has authority. It's not just some arbitrary thing or, or like an imposition or something like that. So I have talked a good deal here, but I wonder if you have any questions about any of this because I've kind of talked myself out. Um, anything that comes to mind, um, or have I covered the whole gamut? <laughs> Bro, that was, that was a good summary. Um, like, you know, personally, I'm, I'm still, I'm still barely even scratching the surface. I haven't even begun to even barely scratch the surface on, on the, on God and on, on what he's revealed to us in his word in Christ and, and just uh, the depths of his love. Uh, his, you know, that's who he is. He, he is love and that's his mm -hmm. nature. And he is, uh, you know, I've, I've heard uh, different arguments from different theologians that um, the Bible emphasizes his holiness, holy, 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 um, that mm -hmm. he is holy, holy, holy. Right. Also, yeah. um, when it talks, what God, uh, what God is, it says He is love. Um, yeah, you know that. So um, that you know, that's you know, and, and but it doesn't say 
I mean, I don't see I don't see in anywhere in scripture where it says God is wrath. You know, I do you see anywhere in scripture where God? Is no, wrath? You know? um, I don't think I recall I mean, that. You know, he he does he does have wrath because he he hates injustice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, he hates the crimes that humans commit against each other and against God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it breaks his heart. It grieves him. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's all coming from who he is. He is love. Um, mm-hmm. I like, um, what's his name? Uh, he, he wrote, he wrote the uncontrolling love of God, uh, Thomas J. Ord. I don't, I don't know if I've heard that one. You, you have to send me the title because it sounds really, okay. really good. Bro, yeah. Check out Thomas J. Ord. I like his, he, he coined a term. I'm not sure if it's original to him. But he coined a term. It's called. It's not omnipotence, but it's omnipotence, meaning that everything that God does, it's out of His love that He's doing it. Like mm-hmm. every action, right. every 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 choice that He makes is motivated by who He is. That and and this and it's coming mm-hmm. from His nature of love. That God is love. Mm-hmm. So everything His crea- creating, His sa- saving, His redemption. Um, Everything is, is, is motivated by who he is, and that's love. Um, and, you know, I'm still personally, I don't, I don't know whether or I don't know whether the end for those who ultimately reject him, I don't know if the end is uh, ultimate reconciliation where they're just purged of that and brought back into fellowship with God, or if it's annihilation, I still don't know. Like, like I said, I'm I'm still scratching the surface. I don't know how that works. Um, I'd love to hear your mm-hmm. thoughts on that. Okay, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have uh, wavered between dogmatic and hopeful universalism. Um, I mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I said at the outset, I become Catholic, so um, I want to be faithful and um, respectful of the tradition. Um, but right. I have an article that I've been meaning to get to about whether Catholics can be universalists or not. Um, I believe I believe we can because I, I don't think it was ever explicitly condemned much to contrary to popular belief. Um, it's just right. that there's a reticence to do that. So um, I will say that I think I can be dogmatically universalist because because of the the nature of God and the nature of humans. Who were created from God. That um, there's an inescapable aspect to that, and it's not—it's not that our freedom is determined, like where, you know, we're going to be forced to one day receive it. Like I said, you can't force someone to receive it, right? But, right. but there is a that nature in us that ultimately. The, the strong, the stronger part of our nature, or maybe that's not the best way to put it, but the original form is to give and receive in love. And the, the, the fallen nature that has fallen short of that is not, is, is weaker. It's, it's, uh, it's not able to hold itself together. In fact, it injures itself. It, it undermines itself. So in my mind, Ultimately, that nature will fail. 
and also um, because we were created to partake of the Trinitarian life, there's no, let's put it this way, there's no human soul or human mind that has been created apart from that um, nature of re reciprocation. Um, maybe we could say that certain human creations or certain things ought to never have been created. And um, <laughs> I think of all kinds of like uh, sinful objects or, or things um, that should never have been created. But that, humans are not that way because of how we are, um, our souls. Um, there's that inescapable nature of, of its, its purpose being to reflect God and to share in the love of God. So because of that, um, ultimately, that still exists, that still hangs together, whether or not we corrupt or deface that image. And so there must be that ability to redeem. There, there must be that ultimate redemption, I think. And so that's how I see it. Um, I, I have heard an argument that says we must be only hopefully universalist because we must respect the fact that people have to make their choices and you can't determine someone's choice for them and say, well, you're going to make this choice. Well, I... I I kind of understand that, but at the same time, I don't think that it's the same thing. Like God saying that someone's going to do something is not him determining that they do it. He's not dictating to them. Um, like, you know, there are plenty of times where God prophesied that someone would do something or a prophet prophesied that someone would do something, you know, by the spirit of God. And they ended up doing it. And it's not that God made them do it. He like twisted their arm or like, like possess them so that they had to do it no matter what. It's just that he, he, uh, um, yeah, he set it all up. He, his spirit flowed, but he knew, he knew that, that that's how it would play out. So, um, yeah, I think we can, we can be strongly universalist. Um, but that's a, that definitely is a whole outflowing conversation based on, this, and, th and I actually have debated whether I wanted to first write a book on gift theology or write a book on universalism. And at one point I felt like, well, I should just do the one on universalism because um, I just felt this drive. Like I I was more passionate about it. I just I wanted to get that out there. And, and um, I had a hard time. I've had a hard time with like just trying to get my thoughts together sometimes to compile them all into a book and that would give me the necessary motivation. But then um, I kind of thought maybe it'd be smarter to start with gift theology because we can all kind of as Christians go back to that well and reconnect over that and realize that's fundamental. You know, like without getting into the controversial stuff first, you know? So exactly. um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but at least we can agree on, you know, start, start there and then see where that takes us, you know? Um, but yeah, I do, I, I am universalist. So, uh, there are other implications that we could draw from this as well. Um, I have thought a lot about the idea of a gift economy. 
and this is kind of wild, but um, you know, there's a lot of controversy these days between socialism and capitalism and all these different isms and economic systems that people want to propose. And I think uh, one of the problems with all of this is that we have an element of coercion and then, or an element of force that's involved. And um, I think that introducing that element of force or even coercion is, uh, it has sort of a, uh, um, it sort of combats against prosperity. Now, let's think about this through the lens of gift theology. Um, if, if God is gift, and therefore reality flows out of that giftedness, and it's characterized by it fundamentally. Could our economies reflect that as well? And what would that look like? Well, this might be this might seem kind of radical, but it might look like people giving to each other without strings attached, um, and without asking, or maybe not asking, but without demanding a payment that you just give. And then it inspires those people to give, and then and that inspires other people to give, and then there's this reciprocity that, that comes through freedom. And so someone might ask, like, how how do we know that all the needs will be met, though? Because people are just you know sort of giving whatever they're inclined to. Well, <laughs> I, I want to say first of all. I'm not proposing that we just dismantle all our economic systems and start doing this. Not, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying maybe it'd be worth an experiment to see, you know, in the, in local communities, if, if, you know, this would work. So we could have people just giving in reciprocity constantly. And, and perhaps that would be the way to go. But one might ask, you know, how, how would we sure that all the needs we met, how would we, how would we know from the outset before we start engaging in, in this way, in this kind of economy? Well, first of all, I'm not saying we should dismantle our economies and just start doing that. You know, the, I think maybe something more like an experiment on some kind of local level would probably be better. <laughs> and I think it's something that perhaps humans need to grow into. Um, but it could be the way forward um and it's a sort of a soft proposal it's not like a hard proposal because i i don't really claim to know exactly how things ought to be but i would be willing to bet that just as you know you know capitalists like to talk about invisible hand of the market i've been a capitalist for a long time so i'm kind of on that side (laughs) to be honest um, but the, the invisible hand of the market where somehow needs are met because um, of the supply and demand cycle and and the price mechanism. And then somehow also, though, there's there's something that happens to this magic of entrepreneurship where people come up with these ideas and then somehow it meets people's needs at the right time. And, and maybe it's more than just like... 
a pragmatic mechanism or something. Maybe there's something divine going on here. And so maybe that would carry forward even more so into a gift economy where people were giving things at just the right time and the right things that needed to be given. I've heard, I've certainly heard of this in terms of, you know, people following divine leading or maybe just giving out of love and, and somehow it was just what that person needed right at that, right, right at that moment, you know, there's a possibility of that. And so there's all kinds of implications that can be drawn from this, you know, and I invite listeners to, you know, let, let this lead them where, where it will. Um, you never know what might result. I think there's so much de depth and profundity and richness to all this that's yet unexplored. I, I will um, someday write a book on this um, as time allows and as I get inspiration. But uh, the nice thing about this is not only is does this give sort of a specificity to the nature of love, um, but there's a sort of a logical working to a logical system almost to what this means, you know, um, though there's also that, that unbridled surprising freedom that, um, is the essence of this, this, uh, gift theology and this way of being. So it's exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to your book, bro. And um, you know, once you once you get it, once you get it out, rough like once you get the final draft, you know, before you publish it, send mm -hmm. it to me, bro. I'll, I'll give you, yeah, sure. I'll give you my wholehearted. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. Awesome. I don't even so really have a is, title for it yet. Is there anything else that you <laughs> want to share? Any 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 burden? Anything you feel that everyone who's listening needs to know before before we end the call before before you have to go. I mean, I, I don't want to hold you up any longer. Oh. But if if well, there's something um, that you, anything else you want to share, any any burden on your heart, feel free to share. So, my closing thoughts and what I feel I would like for people to take from this is that. Um, no matter what stage you are in the journey of faith, whether you haven't yet received salvific grace or whether you're a seasoned believer, lover of God, is that there's no ceiling on how much you can receive. You can always open your arms up more, receive more from God, and reflect on the nature of the gift of God. It's God is the gift. Um, one thing that um, I was thinking about, talking about um, before, but hadn't yet gotten to, and it's in the article that uh, I asked Jonathan to put in the description. There's this whole question of what existence even is? Is it a substance? Is there fundamentally a material basis for reality of some kind even if you say the material is spirit or is the fundamental core nature of how things are a series of relationships and that might be kind of funny to think about because it might tempt one to think of emptiness there's no substance there's just relationships but that's not really the way to think about it it's the fact that there is love the 
it's not that any one thing is the point of life, it's love itself. That's how we should think about it. And so when you're receiving um, the gift of God, um, that's all that God has to give is what, is what I'm getting at. There's no, there's no particular possession. God doesn't have like a series of possessions or um, a series of things to give. He's not composed of anything to give. He's just love. And so when you realize that, you realize all that you have to receive is the fullness of it all, of all that divine nature, all that God is, all this shared between eternity. Um, and realizing our very existence as a gift, that God didn't need to create us, but he freely did. He loved us into being. And he desires to shed that love abroad in our hearts and to our, throughout our beings. And when you really believe that, when you really grasp that and believe it, maybe you don't, you're not fully able to believe it, but you can start to receive it and say, if there's any possibility that this is true, I receive it with all my heart and that will help you grow to believe it. So that's what I recommend to everybody. And that will, that will go with you no matter what stage of life or faith you're in starting with that first moment when you first start receiving in that way from God. Take that with you. Um, I believe there's an, such an utter profundity and grace in this message of the gift of God that um, it's changed my life and I think it'll change yours. So I appreciate you allowing me to Spill my thoughts on this, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing me on, man. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I love this stuff. I love getting my thoughts. And it's not just my thoughts. It started with God. It's, it's sharing God with other people. So, God bless you, man. God bless thank you, you too, brother. Thank you for bringing me on. Absolutely. It's been excellent. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime and yeah when I uh, get close to finishing a book on this and who knows when that'll be but whenever I do or even before then you know I'll come on for and, sure and uh, yeah yeah definitely um, yeah I loved it and I would definitely do this again yep A++ bro thank you <laughs> thanks to all your listeners as well all right. Have brother. a good one. You too. Bye. Take care, brother.